You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Pelvic organ prolapse is a problem that affects many women, but a noticeably greater percentage of women are affected in their postmenopausal years. Latest statistics reveal that one in nine women in the United States will undergo surgery for pelvic organ prolapse or urine incontinence in their lifetime. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, your host, and with me today is Dr. Elizabeth Cavallara, who is the urologist and residency program director in urology at the Lenox Hill Hospital and author of A Seat in the Aisle, The Essential Guide to Urological Problems in Women. Welcome, Dr. Cavalier. Thank you. So this problem of pelvic organ relaxation, prolapse, and incontinence, I'm sure is something that you see every day. And I was wondering if you had some suggestions for the best way for someone to start evaluating a patient who comes in with pelvic organ prolapse or relaxation. The first thing is to get a history. That's the most important aspect to anything dealing with pelvic organ prolapse because it's a symptom-based condition. So if a woman doesn't have any symptoms, then whether she has prolapse or not is generally not important unless it's severe. But they almost always have symptoms. So the first thing is, do they have pelvic pressure? Do they have discomfort? Do they have incontinence? Do they have constipation? Do they feel anything coming out of their vaginas? Once that's been determined on exam, you look at whether or not there's a bulge coming out of the vaginal canal. If there's a bulge coming out of the vaginal canal, there's a prolapse. Do you think that there are common uh, misconceptions by the examining physicians that we can uh, maybe clarify today when examining a patient like this? The biggest misconception is that there's nothing you can do about it, and whatever we do about it is not very successful, and that's a huge misconception. These surgeries and these repairs have a very bad reputation for being not only very morbid and causing a lot of complications, but they recur. The recurrence rates are very high, and we've changed things tremendously in these kinds of surgeries so that they are much less invasive and much more successful. So if a woman has a prolapse and she has any symptoms related to it or there's any concern by her physician that there's enough of a prolapse that it should be addressed, then somebody who does a lot of these surgeries and is very comfortable with this problem should be allowed to evaluate the patient and give their opinion. And in these patients, when do you think urodynamic testing should be done? I recommend urodynamic testing in a couple of situations. The first one is that if a woman has urinary incontinence, she should have studies done to see how she voids, what her voiding pressures are, in order to determine how tight the sling should be and whether the prolapse actually has to be repaired at the same time or not. If there's a small prolapse, it's possible it doesn't even need to be repaired if the incontinence surgery is going to be done. The second is if the patient is in complete emptying and then there's some concern that she has retention as a result of the prolapse, that's complicated to assess because many women don't urinate well when they're in a doctor's office. You check the residual, it's 150 cc's, which is sort of a borderline abnormal residual, and you don't know is that real or is that because she's sitting in this office and she's anxious and not emptying properly. So then a urodynamic study is very helpful. You know, it's interesting when I was looking through some of the urogynecological literature, there were comments that suggest that the prolapse to or vaginal descent to the hymenal ring is normal for some women. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? It's not normal. It's in many ways not a problem. And there are women who come in with unrelated problems. You examine them and you see that they have a grade 3 cystocele, which is where it's come all the way to the introitus. And you say, did, did you realize that your bladder's down? And they go, oh, yeah, my gynecologist has been telling me that for years, but it doesn't bother me and I'm leaving it alone. And that's perfectly fine. So I wouldn't call it normal, but I think it's, it's not unusual. That's the thing about prolapse is what I always tell the residents, that it is not 
something that has to be repaired in any preventive way. The patients get repaired when they're symptomatic. If they're not symptomatic now, but they're symptomatic in six months, that's fine. You'll repair it in six months. If you have to talk somebody into prolapse surgery, they don't need it. And what you were alluding to earlier, so if someone has incontinence symptoms, certainly repairing the bladder may or may not accompany prolapse repair. In someone who does not have incontinence problem, do you feel that repairing the prolapse without addressing the bladder at all is a good idea? This is a hugely controversial area, is whether to do a preventive sling procedure. Is that what you're asking me? Yes, exactly. To do a preventive sling procedure in a woman who has a large prolapse. The theory behind doing the sling at the time of the prolapse surgery is because the same pathology that led to the prolapse will lead to stress incontinence. And if they don't have stress incontinence now, they may get it in the future. And the second is that once you repair the prolapse, you now have a direct line from the bladder out. So you may unmask what's called occult stress incontinence. And those are the two reasons why they're repaired. The problem is that if you do the incontinence surgery at the time of the prolapse and the patient has a complication from it, such as retention, it's difficult to justify having done a surgery that the patient didn't need. There's no guidelines at this point on whether to do the incontinence surgery or not. And people have a very dogmatic approach to it. I always do it this way or I never do it that way. So I don't know what the right answer is. I tend to err on the side of doing the sling at the same time as the prolapse repair. But I'm becoming less uh, less dogmatic about it. I can see why people don't do it. Do you think there's any evidence-based research going on asking this question right now? No. The, the research, it's goes back and forth. There was a big study that was started about four years ago by Dr. Brubaker where she was randomizing patients to sling and no sling at the time of their prolapse surgery. And there were so many patients that had incontinence who were not getting slings. So the post-op incontinence in the non-sling group was so high, they abandoned the study. There's a new study in the Journal of Urology published this month that did the same thing, only they found that the patients who had the sling surgeries had many, many more complications. So their recommendation is you don't do the sling at the time of the prolapse surgery. So as many articles in favor of one side are in favor of the opposite. If you're just joining us, we are discussing with Dr. Elizabeth Cavalier the challenges in care of patients with pelvic organ relaxation and prolapse. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Dr. Kevler, do you think there are specific risk factors that patients may have that will increase their risk for pelvic organ relaxation or prolapse? The number one risk factor is genetics. If your mother had it, you're more likely to get it or you're predisposed to it. And that's most likely because the collagen content of the skin and of the mucosa is a hereditary factor. The other things that predispose are pregnancy, labor, not necessarily vaginal delivery, but labor, chronic coughing, constipation, smoking, anything that's going to affect the skin, which is that vaginal mucosa is, is very similar to skin, and the ligaments in there are very subject to those sorts of risk factors. The big question is, does vaginal delivery predispose? And that's also a controversial question because should we be counseling women to not have vaginal deliveries if they don't want to risk prolapse? And the answer is no, we should not, that there are women who have no vaginal deliveries who have prolapse, and there are women who have 11 children. We have an Orthodox Jewish community here who have 11 children and no prolapse. So I can't say that that's a risk factor that we should be counseling women to have elective C-sections for this condition. When you identify these patients with pelvic organ relaxation, what is your first conservative recommendations other than surgical intervention? It depends on how uncomfortable they are. And a lot of the recommendations are based on the, in the intuitive response I have to how they are presenting. So if they are a patient who's very motivated not to have surgery, then exercises can be helpful depending on how bad the prolapse is. So a grade two, which is 
mild descent into the vaginal canal, they could do very well with Kegel exercises, and there are physical therapists that specialize in pelvic floor rehabilitation who will do directed, focused exercise with various appliances that can be extremely effective, and also with women who have incontinence. And if a woman is not ready to have surgery, it's an excellent place for her to start is to go to a physical therapist and learn how to do the exercises effectively. Mm -hmm. And then there's pessaries, and pessaries can work for a lot of women, and they learn how to take them out and put them back in themselves, and they use them effectively. Is there a timeline for this conservative therapy that you have in your mind before you would consider encouraging a patient to consider surgery? No, I generally present the options. I encourage them to take a non-surgical approach first. And then they come back to see me if they are doing this physical therapy. I see them at the end of the session, which is usually three months or so into their therapy, and see how they're faring, what they think, what their sense of their experience has been. And if they're using a pessary, I see them every six months anyway to check the mucosa, make sure that there's no ulcerations or injuries. And then each visit, I just say, we're not going to make a plan for the next 25 years. We're going to make a plan for the next six months. And that often helps people make assessments that are more sensible for them and what's going on in their lives. And at some point, they'll say to me, I can't do this anymore. I've had enough of this. I want to get this done. Or they don't. I find it's it's very patient-directed in the sense that they live with it every day. And when it bothers them enough, they let us know for sure. What are the most common techniques you have for recommending repair surgically of the pelvic organ prolapse? Well, I'm a big advocate of vaginal repair. There is no reason to do this abdominally anymore for almost any kind of prolapse. And laparoscopy and robotic surgery, which are kind of in the same category, involve abdominal to get into the abdomen. So you're dealing now with bowel, you're packing things out of the way. I don't want to ever look at bowel when I'm doing vaginal surgery, and I never have to. So I don't like the idea of laparoscopy or robotic surgery for this, and I do everything vaginally. Also, the pathology is vaginal, so you need to put your support under the organ that's prolapsing, and that's what you can do with vaginal surgery. So I do everything vaginally. And I used to do the hysterectomies on my patients that had uterine prolapse, but it doesn't need to be done anymore. We can do almost all uterine suspensions can be done from below. Thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Cavalier, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the challenges in treatment of women with pelvic organ relaxation or prolapse. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You've been listening to the Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But I saw this commercial for something called a Vista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. 
So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you, the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.